south of the Mason-Dixon. This is the Week in Review at the Abbeville Institute. Here is your host, Brian McClanahan. Welcome back to the Week in Review at the Abbeville Institute. This is your host, Brian McClanahan, and this is episode 250. We made it to 250. Amazing. 250 episodes. Thank you for joining us at the Week in Review at the Abbeville Institute. You can go to our webpage, abbevilleinstitute.org. You can find there our social media accounts. You can follow us on Twitter, like our Facebook page, subscribe to our YouTube page, do all those things that we always talk about. We've got a new website redesign coming up. That's going to be cool as well. So if you're listening to this after the fact, maybe we've changed some things. But right now, if you're getting this the week of February 22nd through 26, 2021, you're going to see the old page. So while you're there, give us an email address. We'll give you a free ebook. Exploring the Southern Tradition, great book of 20 essays in defense of the Southern Tradition by 20 Abbeville Institute scholars. Your gift free of charge for simply giving us an email address. You'll get our daily dose of Dixie Monday through Friday. It's a great way to keep up with what we're doing at the Institute and for us to contact you. You'll know about our Zoom conferences. We have one, or we had one this past week, which was tremendous. Marshall DeRosa on the Confederate Constitution. Great time. Again, you're going to want these. We're going to have one coming up in March, too, so check your email. We're going to do one one a month, and uh, we're going to do one a month, I should say, and so check your email because you're going to get information about these, and there's only a hundred slots. Now, if you missed it, just go to just go to abbevilleacademy.org, abbevilleacademy.org. You can enroll there for free, but then you can purchase a replay of any of our Zoom conferences uh, and we've got three of them. Right? We've got the, the uh, Slavery and the War with Don Livingston, Phil Lee, and Sandy Mitchum. We've got uh, Tom DiDorenzo talking about Lincoln. And now we've got Marshall DeRosa and the Confederate Constitution. Our next one should be on, and I can't guarantee this 100%, but should be on John C. Calhoun with a couple of great Calhoun scholars. So that is going to be a good time, too. And, of course, I host all these, so... If, Every now and then, people ask me a question, so um, I don't mind answering either, but they are a lot of fun. I would highly recommend you get on those things. Also, we exist on your generous contributions alone, so if you like what we do, if you like this podcast, 250 podcasts, by the way. Again, I mean, that's that's amazing. 250 podcasts, if you like it, it's 250 weeks of this. <laughs> I mean, that's that's five years now of the Abbey Week in Review at the Abbeville Institute. It's hard to believe I've been doing this for five years. If you like that, then consider a tax-deductible donation of the Institute. We exist on your generous contributions alone. Just click on that support tab. You can also get your apparel, Abbeville Institute apparel there. All kinds of great ways to support the Institute. We appreciate everything you do for us and everything you've done for the Institute. To those who listen to the podcast, we appreciate you tuning in every week and getting this podcast. It is something that uh, started out just as, you know, is this thing going to work? We've now got 250 of them. We've got as many podcasts now as we have lectures that we've given at summer schools and other conferences. So, or just about. I think we're a little bit short still, but it won't be that way very long. I mean, by the time we get to the end of the year, we'll probably be at the point where we've got about the same We'll have nearly 300 podcasts by the end of the year. I mean, this is absolutely amazing that we've gotten 250 episodes under our belts. And a lot has changed in that time, right? Early podcasts was a little longer than it is now. I did things a little differently. But 
You can find all those old podcasts at abbeyvilleinstitute.org. You just click on that podcast tab under audiovisual, and you can listen to every single one of the podcasts. Go all the way back to 2016 is when we started this thing. 2016. Um, and I remember when we did it, when we started that podcast, and I went. To, we had a conference in Charleston. I had just started. It was Febu- end of February 2016. I just started the podcast, and a couple of people. Oh, yeah, that's great! You know, you did. You got to get an intro to it. So we've got an intro song now. You know, we've done some things, uh, shorten the format up a little bit, but the point of it has still been the same. Let's talk about the material we produce on the website for the week, or anything else that, of course, might be applicable to the week. And sometimes we don't have an article about something's going on, but we still talk about it on the podcast. And in this particular case, when I mean, we have that this week, I want to mention. George Washington. I want to mention George Washington because his birthday is February 22nd. And I want to mention Washington because Washington embodies the quintessential Southerner. If you look at Robert E. Lee, and there are two people, and I'm I'm working on a book behind the scenes right now that I won't, I'm ghostwriting it. But there is a point that I make in the book about Lee and Washington. And of course, Washington and Lee University, uh, the, the attempt is being made now to take Lee's name off of that. He's not, if you look at Alan Gelzo, he's not remarkable. Lee did nothing remarkable. He's just a middle-class guy. He didn't do anything. He's a traitor, even. Nothing remarkable about, about Lee. He doesn't deserve anything. But if you look at the way that both of these men were treated in their lifetime and immediately after, you look at Washington. When you look at Washington's first inaugural, you look at the procession that he went to to get to New York, because the first capital, of course, is in New York, first U.S. capital. The man was treated as a king, practically. I mean, all of it smacked of monarchy. You had girls throwing flowers on the ground in front of him, singing hosannas to him. You had you had salutes, cannon salutes, just about anywhere Washington passed. Thousands of people packing the streets to see George Washington just to catch a glimpse of the man. And the ladies of the South were certainly part of this. You look at uh, one of the, in Mount Vernon, of course, the Mount Vernon and the Ladies Association, one of the original members was from South Carolina, and she was one of the little girls that had been in this procession in New Jersey uh, when Washington moved through New Jersey. Had They, they built this... Uh, an arch of flowers that Washington walked on. I mean, this is this is amazing stuff when you think about it. And Washington was treated this way all through his life after the war, and of course, and through his presidency, and then the country mourned for years. I mean, people were still painting their mantles black years after Washington died in mourning of the great George Washington. And then you have Lee. Lee was treated the same way throughout the South after the war and then after he died. I mean, this is why there's statues of Robert E. Lee. Robert E. Lee was considered to Southerners to be the second coming of George Washington. It's just he lost the war. And this is, the neocons can't stand this. They hate Robert E. Lee. They hate Robert E. Lee because Robert E. Lee was supposedly committing treason and fighting against the good guys, which the guys wearing the blue uniforms. 
And so they have to tear Lee down. And in that way, they're, they're handing it over right to the left. They don't realize what they're doing is dangerous. You see, because Lee and the very, you know, the accolades that he received after the war and the very way Southerners treated him and the way that Europeans looked at Lee, Lord Acton and others, the way they looked at Lee, they saw in Lee and in the South the old American traditions being eviscerated by the North. And we know this is the case. We know this is what was happening. It didn't mean that all these things were found only in the South. We know that the founding generation across the board, if you look at someone like Roger Sherman from Connecticut, he was just as much interested in decentralization and limited federal power as uh, George Mason of Virginia. It's just that Sherman trusted the Constitution would restrain federal power as Mason did not. But these, these Northerners were just as interested in that original Federal Republic as Southerners were. And that it's just the South hung on to this longer. So we call it the Southern tradition, but really it's the American, it's the Jeffersonian tradition. Uh, I was uh, received a, I bought a book the other day. It's Ellis Arnell's autobiography. The title of the book is The Shore Dimly Seen. And Edward, uh, Ellis Arnell, excuse me, Ellis Arnell was a governor of Georgia in the 1940s. Now he's a leftist. Ellis Arnell was a leftist. And, but it's a, it's a great book because it's not modern leftism. It's, it's something else. It's, 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 he was considered leftist because of his views on race. He was, he certainly wasn't a segregationist. And of course, you know, we would look at that as not being a leftist today. Because a lot of what else he says in there sounds very much like someone who's a conservative. But when you look at at Arnell and you look at the things that he said about the South, it's normal. It's normal. This is normal. This is normal reconciliationist language. We've lost all that. We've lost all that in America. And he loved Robert E. Lee. New South Southerners who were looking at these things still love the past. They still love the people. They still love the place where they came from. They were Georgians and South Carolinians and Virginians and Texans, Mississippians and Tennesseans. They were, they were that. And they loved those things. This is why SEC football is what it is. All these people are Southern, but those rivalries, those state rivalries mean something. And I know you have some of it in the North, Michigan, Ohio State. It just doesn't feel the same. It doesn't feel the same as Georgia, uh, Florida, for example. It doesn't feel the same at all. So Lee... And go back to Lee and what these what Lee means. Lee means as much to the South as George Washington does. And, and the neocons and the left can't stand it, which is why they got to tear him down. And that's why I bring up George Washington, because, of course, Lee is married into Washington's family. And now I saw the other day that Arlington, the uh, the city of Arlington, is, is they're taking the Arlington mansion symbol off the state, 
off the city seal and all the correspondence. They're taking that off. They want they want some other kind of uh, image to go on the Arlington stationery because they don't want any association with Robert E. Lee's house. It's not. It's divisive. It's not inclusive. How so? This is almost psychotic. In fact, you could say it is psychotic. It's psychotic. So I like the fact that we have Washington's birthday. And people, I mean, I remember as a graduate student, young graduate student, going into Clyde Wilson's office and him saying, tell me what you know about George Washington. He didn't ask me about Robert E. Lee. He didn't ask me about Jefferson Davis. He asked me about George Washington. And because George Washington embodied the South. He was the quintessential Southern gentleman in every way. The athlete. He wasn't the best scholar in the South, but he was a well-rounded, he wasn't an idiot. I mean, you read what George Washington wrote. I mean, you would be hard-pressed to find a modern politician that could write that way. By no means was Washington a dimwit. A great soldier, a great statesman, a great man, a man of principle, a man of courage. These are things that Americans aspired to be for generations. But now, Washington has to come down. He has to come, his statue has to come down in Chicago because he owns slaves. That's how stupid we've gotten. Who are you going to replace it with? Who are you going to replace George Washington with? And when I, when I asked that question, when I was interviewed at the Christian Science Monitor in 2015 on Confederate monuments, when this was, I said, look, it's, good. it's not going to stop here. And the interviewer almost laughed. It's, are, it's not going to stop here. They're going to go after everything. And they are. Six years ago, I predicted this. June of 2015, we're almost there now. Six years ago, I predicted exactly what's happening right now. It's just going to take another push, another push. But it's all going to come down. There's going to be nothing left except for the stories, the myths, so to speak. And when you have the neoconservatives trying to take down Robert E. Lee, too, well, you don't have any friends. This is why we need the Institute. It's why we need people on our side to say these things and more people to listen to these things. So with that said, I want to bring up, I mean, we had some really great pieces this week that go into this, right? Valerie Protopappas' piece on the old Museum of the Confederacy. Now, I guess it's called the... National Civil War Museum or some nonsense. The American Civil War Museum. I don't know what it is. The Museum of the Confederacy. You saw this. See, there was already warning signs of this in Columbus, Georgia. You used to have in Columbus, Georgia, the Confederate Naval Museum. The Confederate Naval Museum. And this is a really cool place. Now, if you've ever been to Columbus, Georgia, they have a couple of really neat museums in Columbus, Georgia. And they're going to have three eventually. I don't know when the other, actually four, and they'll have four. They have three really neat ones now, and maybe a fourth at some point. But uh, the first is the old Confederate Naval Museum. They have the hall of the CSS Jackson sitting in this museum. What happened was the CSS Jackson was just being finished in April of 1865 when the Union Army moved in Columbus and burned the city. And so that they could keep it out of the hands of the Union, they burned the ship and sent it down the Chattahoochee River, and it hit, on, hit a sand barge and burned the waterline. Well, 
There was another ship out there, too, another Confederate ship, the CSS Chattahoochee, that got stuck in about the same sandbar. It's right, if, you, if, you, um, if you're familiar with Fort Benning, there is an airfield there. And uh, that's, it was, there's a bend in the river right there, and that's right about where the ships got stuck in the mud. So in the 1960s, they got this thing out. They, they came in, they, they got some money, and they pulled these ships out. In fact, in one, the, the, the hull of the Chattahoochee is in two parts because they put some dynamite in the middle of it and blew the center out so they could get the ship out of the mud. And they put it in this, they had it sitting outside for years, and now they built this museum around the ship. So you go into this thing, you can smell it the second you walk in the door. It's this old charred oaks. Uh, sorry, it's not, well, there's oak in it, but also pine and other things. Old charred smell sitting there. It's huge. It's over 200 feet long. You, and to put that in perspective, when, if you ever watch a show like The Deadliest Catch or something, you see these crabbers out on the Bering Sea. They're on boats that are about 100 feet long or less. This thing is double the size of that. It's a huge ship. It's big old ironclad. They even have the iron for it. Um, now, somebody, some moron, during the Summer of Rage, it was in a storage shed. I don't know how much survived. I haven't checked on this, but they burned down the storage shed, so I don't know how much of the iron was damaged. But they had the iron sitting outside for this thing, too. I mean, amazing stuff. They've got this, this beautiful ship. They've got a collection of Confederate flags like you've never seen. They have the flag from the CSS Atlanta there. And you look at little models of the Atlanta, and it's got this, it's a little tiny flag. This, this second national is, takes up almost an entire wall. It's enormous. They've got a flag from the CSS Arkansas. They've got all this cool stuff in the museum. All that said, it was at one time called the Confederate Naval Museum. Well, the powers that be decided that that wasn't inclusive enough. So now it's the National Civil War Naval Museum. And when they did that, people yanked their donations because they weren't going to contribute to that. And they've got all this Union stuff in there now. And it's not about the Confederacy. Well, this is what happened with the Museum of the Confederacy. See, the warning shots are fine. You can't have a Museum of the Confederacy, even though that's what it was dedicated as. And Valerie Protopappas writes this beautiful piece taking down one of the old directors, a guy named Rawls. This piece was written 13 years ago now. And a letter that she wrote to him. And how, you know, well, this we got to be inclusive and uh, blah, blah, blah. And she just rips him apart. I mean, it's a beautiful essay taking down this idiot who thought it was better to call it the National Civil War Museum or some nonsense. I can't remember what they call the thing now. But it was the Museum of the Confederacy. And we published the speech that was given at the dedication in the late 19th century by Bradley T. Johnson. Beautiful speech at the dedication of the Museum of the Confederacy and what it was supposed to be. And as she points out, people were bringing what they thought were sacred relics from all over the south of this place. It was a place that they could have their stuff. Now it has to be the Civil War Museum, so we can have more, uh, more discussion of the issues and more of the contextualization of what's important in the south and what's important in the war. This is what you get, right? I mean, this is this is the sad part of, well, just, you know, those flags are important, so put them in a museum. So you put them in a museum, and what do you get? Those statues are important. They deserve to be in a museum. What are you going to get when you put them there? And who controls the museums? For all the problems Glenn Beck has, he was right about this. Yeah, I, I, turned, I was driving in the car, and I just put on the radio for a second, 
And there's Glenn Beck, and he's saying, you know, museums are a problem. This is why we need our own museums. This is where we've gotten to. You can't even trust museums to show there should be no contextualization about an artifact in a museum. Simply state what it is, and people can look at it. But no, no. Everything is contextualized now. We have to have a, nar a narrative, an understanding of what this stuff is and what it means to modern America. Look at these statues of traitors and these flags of traitors. That's what you're going to get now. Look at these flags of racists. Well, we know that the Union guys are all racist too, but that's not said. We don't say, look at the U.S. flag. It's a flag of racism. Now, if you're the 1619 Project, you do. And so that's good. The neoconservatives are having a heart attack over this. How can you say that? Well, I mean, all kinds of racists fought under that flag. It flew over slavery. They can't wiggle out of these things. You see, that's the natural progression of all of this. You open the door, and this is what you're going to get, and then what do you do? You have to tear it all down. You have to tear everything down. It has to be torn down. There's no way not to do it. You have to change the name of anything that has to do with the South. You have to. You've got country singers now apologizing. You've got major television shows. I'm sorry. I was in a at my sorority. I was in a ball and I dressed in a ball in a uh, in a antebellum gown. Who cares? This is so stupid. Who cares if the New York Times, uh, the uh, people that used to own it, uh, uh, viewed the Confederacy positively or supported the Confederacy? Who cares? Did they do that now? This is all stupid stuff. I mean, we're we're in a complete world of stupidity. And we're in that world of stupidity because nobody has any anchor anymore. They don't know anything. Now, of course, the response to this often is, and, and I'll say this about a couple other pieces. We had a piece by you know, Clyde Wilson talking about a horrible film, The Burning of Atlanta, I think is the title of the film. Let me look here. I, I had the piece up. Uh, yeah, The Burning of Atlanta. So don't watch it. 82 Minutes of Garbage. Now, the original, there was a film called Fire Trail, which was a very good film. But the original version, not the not the edited version. But he said, "Don't watch it." But see, he said, "Look, we have we have an opportunity. We have great stories to tell, but we'll never get those stories told because we don't have enough people with money and courage to do it." That's the problem. And you got Jack Marcourt writing a piece, the big monochrome uh, picture, and he's talking about you know the sixteen nineteen project and the real history of all these things having to do with Virginia. And he brings up uh, Doctor Thaddeus Wilbur Tate who wrote in 1957 about uh, the Negro in 18th century Williamsburg. I mean, it was the title of the paper. And he looked at black life in Williamsburg, and he said, you know, it's, 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 you're not, if you read that paper, if you read Fogel and Engerman, if you read Eugene Genovese, you're not going to get the 1619 Project version of things. But, that's, we're, but even the 1776 Project or report that was published during the Trump administration immediately uh, you know, taken down by the Biden administration. See, the Biden administration is all on board because of their constituents with critical race theory and other things. You th you look at that, and it's it wouldn't even fit with this. That's because we've gotten to a point of complete historical ignorance in America. And not just that. It's purposeful historical ignorance or history as a weapon. It's not to understand anymore. It's to persecute. It's to charge. You can't have the Museum of the Confederacy because that might make somebody feel uncomfortable. So you got to call it the Civil War Museum. 
You can't have the national, you can't have the Confederate Naval Museum. It has to be the National Civil War Naval Museum. All this nonsense. I mentioned a couple other museums. There is one cool place in Columbus, if you're ever there, uh, Westville. They moved Westville from Lumpkin, Georgia, which never had any traffic, to Columbus. And it's an 1850, it's like the 1850s Williamsburg. Now, the interpretation oftentimes is ridiculous, but they used to, used to be cool back in the 1980s. You used to be able to go there. And they always had this lady making bis- sausage biscuits right in the in the old kitchen. And you could just go up and get a, p- a piece of wax paper with a sausage biscuit on. They shut all that down because of the health department, right? So you used to be able to go up and get an old sausage biscuit right there. And just a cool place, right? Well, they've, they've moved it now to Lumpkin because nobody went anymore. I love the place. It was just beautiful. Now it's in, in Columbus, Georgia. They also have the National Infantry Museum there, which, of course, the Confederacy is the enemy, and they finally opened the quote-unquote Civil War exhibit, which is a neat exhibit. There's a few neat, interesting artifacts in there, but there's all kinds of other neat stuff there. And they're going to be building the Armor Museum there, too. So if you like military history, it is a pretty in, in, interesting place. But all that said, you know, when you look at what the response is to this, well, it's decentralization, clearly. We have people, but I mean, even in the states themselves, you're having these problems. So you've got uh, uh, Terry Halsey writing a series of book reviews, Secession's Magic Numbers, and he's got a couple of parts of this. And he talks about American nations, a history of the 11 rival regional cultures of North America. And he says, look, I mean, this is by Colin Woodard. And Colin Woodard says, these things have never gone away. They've never gone away. In fact, he says, what you have really in America are these cultures, and they always vote this way. They always look at themselves this way. And he has one area that's called Yankeedom, right? It's the northern Great Lakes. It's New England. And it even goes into Canada. You've got the Deep South and Greater Appalachia. You also have you know, New France. You've got New Netherlands. You've got the Tidewater region. You've got these different areas, the far west, the left coast, I mean, he talks about these different cultural regions, and he says this is where you have distinctiveness and how the United States really should be structured, not by state, but by nation. I used to ask students in, uh, in my classes, define nation and state, and they would, or people, define these things. It was part of their first homework assignment. Define nation, state, and people bring that back to me. And they'd come back, and, and we'd talk about these things, and it's so important to look at that, to find nation, state, and people. Because when you look at state and you look at what people think a state is, well, they're going to spring up. Oh, the state is what an America state is. They don't understand what that means. And then they also don't understand what a nation is because they think it's in, they have this very broad definition of nation. But a, a, a concise definition of it is based on culture and primarily a, a common culture. And you don't have that in the United States anymore. It doesn't exist. It never has existed, really. It was a very brief period of time when, after World War II that you had kind of this common cause among all Americans because we all fought in World War II and we defeated the Nazis and the, and the Japanese, and, and that was great, but all that went away. And so what do you do about it? Well, you've got a piece by Earl Starbuck, Judicial Review? No, nullification. You gotta have decentralization. That's certainly part of the Southern tradition. And he brings up all these quote great quotes by St. George Tucker and Thomas Jefferson, and he's got a note in there, and 
Uh, he, had, he had dozens of quotes from the founding generation, north and south, of talking about the fact that judicial review wasn't necessarily something that, or, the, or I should say that the, the process by which the court system becomes the legislative branch was not something the founding generation wanted. But of course, that's what we've gotten. And this is a really good piece. He says, look, what we have to do, and it must be noted, Earl Starbuck is a young guy, and that gives me hope. He's, he's a young man, only in his early 20s. It gives me hope there's people out there thinking like this that are in their early 20s. I remember I was one of those people once. And I wouldn't have written this as well as Earl Starbuck did when I was in my early 20s. But you've got people that are certainly uh, interested in these ideas of decentralization, political decentralization, what that means, looking at the founding generation, what they said the Constitution means when it was ratified. You've got that. And then you've got, of course, a bunch of morons running around that don't know anything. We're fighting an uphill battle, but this is, again, why we exist. The Jeffersonian political tradition exists because Americans across the board believed in political decentralization in the 18th century and, for the most part, in the 19th century. It wasn't until Lincoln came along that and codified this nationalism we had those people there, of course. You had John Marshall, and you had Alexander Hamilton, and you had James Wilson. You had these people. But even James Wilson argued for a constitution that not what we have now. So did John Marshall. So did Hamilton. You had Daniel Webster. You had some of these people. Daniel Webster, it's interesting. Daniel Webster was a nationalist, but only in name. He really was a New England sectionalist. That's what Daniel Webster was. He, he wasn't a nationalist. He didn't believe in a national. Whereas Calhoun was a nationalist. Calhoun believed in a union that benefited all and burdened all equally. That's nationalism. Calhoun was a unionist to the day he died. And he thought the only way to preserve the union was to ensure that all people in the union were protected and not abused by one section or another. And that was his concurrent majority, which is often misunderstood. So all of that said, I mean, thank you for joining us for 250 episodes. These are great essays this week. I didn't really get into detail too much on these things, because so I wanted to talk about just some other things as well. But thank you for joining us for 250 episodes. If you've been there for everything, every single one, that's an amazing feat. That's five years. We've had a lot of good and a lot of bad in five years. A lot's happened in five years. We started producing this podcast shortly after the initial Summer of Rage in 2015. We've now produced it through really down periods in, in Southern history. I mean, it's, it's gotten worse in five years, and who knows, five more years, it may be even worse than it is now. I don't see it getting any better anytime soon, but I do see people starting to think, wait a second here, some of this stuff is getting out of control. we gotta, we got to start reining this stuff in a little bit. And we do have a counterweight to what's going on in America. It is a Southern tradition. It is something that means something to people. It can mean something. It's the idea of you know, community, individuals working together in communities, states to try to have solutions to things and having a common culture, getting together, understanding who your neighbors are and these type of things. This is, this is a Southern tradition. It's agrarianism. It's the literature, the music, the camaraderie. All of this stuff matters. The food. Politics is an extension of that. If we start thinking that way, then we start changing things in America. The solution doesn't come from the politics. It comes from the people and the culture that produced that. 
That's why we do what we do at the Abbeville Institute. The Southern tradition is deeper than just a political part. It is an important part, and um, it's why that it's why we do what we do. All right. Until next time. Until the next two fifty. Hopefully, we'll get to all that. Good day. Mm-hmm.